thank you guys for leading us so much. You guys know, we're going to get into Revelation now, that we've been traveling through the book of Revelation, and, and as, worship, as a worship team and the leaders, and uh, we've challenged us as a community to really um, drink in Revelation 1 through 5, and in particular Revelation 4 and 5, and our worship leaders have been doing that, and it is so evident as they're leading us in, in worship. It's so evident by their song choices. It's so evident in the spirit with which they're leading us. It's a powerful experience as we, as we ourselves work toward this throne room of worship in Revelation. Well, welcome to this Revelation series. We're six weeks in. <laughs> are you beginning to get an apocalypse of Jesus Christ? Are, are you? Is he beginning to uh, pull back the curtain? Remember, that's the meaning of the word apocalypse. It's not some disastrous thing that happens. It's a revelation. It's an apocalypse. As Jesus pulls back the curtain on who he is, as he pulls back the curtain on who we are, as he pulls back in the curtain, the curtain on what's happening in our lives and helps us to see that he is present right in the middle of our mess. And aren't we thankful for that? Right in the middle of the mess of our lives, right in the middle of the mess of the church, Jesus is present and he's speaking right from the middle. It's this beautiful, uh, beautiful picture that we receive in chapter 1 of Revelation of, of this Jesus, this great high priest, right in the middle of the church. And if you haven't caught up, if you've missed a few messages, I encourage you to go online uh, and, 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 and keep pace. Some of you work shift work. Uh, some of you, there's various things that happen. Well, I, I totally understand. But keep up. Especially if you're in connect groups, because come on, you won't be able to add much to the discussion if you hadn't heard what was going on. So, catch up if you can. And if you're, you're, you're brand new this year, you're not too sure what's going to happen with, come on, let's be honest, a series in Revelation. You find yourself a little nervous even now. I encourage you to go back, listen to those uh, you know, messages, but especially the first couple, because we really set the course for where we're at, where we're heading. Because if we don't get off on the right path, we're going to go into some really strange places with the book of Revelation. So I encourage you to do that. Here's my opening question for this morning. Have we ever done something really impractical? Maybe you have attempted time travel. Is that yours? Don't touch it. It's Uncle Rico's. What's it for? It's a time machine, Napoleon. We bought it online. You're right. It works, Napoleon. You don't even know. Have you guys tried it yet? No. Are you ready? Yeah, hold on. I forgot to put in the crystals. Okay, turn it on. It's a piece of crap. It doesn't work. I could have told you that.
Well, I promised on Facebook a time travel reference in honor of Back to the Future Week. And I couldn't resist. Sometimes we do things that just aren't practical. But, but let me expand the question a little bit. Have you ever done something really impractical, but you knew it was the right thing to do? You went out of your way to help someone, and you had big plans for the day, but uh, you ended up not getting your own stuff done. Maybe you saved your money, you saved your money, you saved your money, and you ended up blowing it on a mission trip. Uh, Maybe you stood up for someone who was being bullied, and it cost you. You lost some friends. Sometimes being impractical is the right thing to do. Now, here at the Erickson County Church, you know, we try to be as practical as we can be with our teaching, with our life following Jesus. Uh, We really believe that following Jesus makes sense in life. It'll help you develop in your relationships. It'll help you deal with your blind spots. It'll help you deepen in your faith and discover your purpose and grow in grace. And that's all true. In fact, our whole summer series in the book of Proverbs was all about that. How as we let Jesus speak into our lives, it'll make a real difference in every area of our lives. But it needs to be said, sometimes following Jesus will not be practical at all. Sometimes being loyal to Jesus in certain situations won't make any sense to the people around you. It just, it won't add up. They'll look at you strange. Stranger than usual, at least. And sometimes it'll just be impractical to the extreme. Think about it. There's times when following Jesus won't make sense to the people around you. You'll be generous in a way that defies logic. Jesus will lead you to forgive someone that no one else is willing to forgive. Jesus will inspire you to actually give up the very things that people around you are literally selling their souls to get. Sometimes following Jesus is very impractical. And we struggle with this. I struggle with this. You know, a mentor of mine got a phone call from a, from a mom. She was very distraught. Asked him to come over. He's a pastor. Came over to her house, uh, and, and she was there, and her teenage daughter was there. They were in tears. They were in the kitchen. What's going on? Well, it's a Christian family, Christian girl. She's pregnant. And uh, the tears were because uh, she wanted to keep the baby. She, she knew it was the right thing to do. And uh, keep the baby and maybe, maybe, maybe raise it, probably give it up for adoption. But she was, she was wrestling with this. But the father, the Christian father, of this teenage girl wasn't having any of that. He was urging her to have an abortion. And my friend, my Christian friend, was shocked by that. He was like, what are you talking about, man? That's not right. Yeah, maybe this wasn't an ideal situation, but this baby, regardless of how it came about, is created in the image of God, loved by God, valued by God. As Christians, we don't abort babies. We raise babies. We, We love babies. We care for them. How did this father respond to my friend? Listen carefully. This is what he said. He said, come on. Be realistic. Yeah, I know that's what Jesus says. I know that's what the Bible says. Yeah, I know that babies are valuable. But this is the real world. In the real world, teenage girls don't need babies. They need abortions. Let's face it. Sometimes following Jesus can seem very impractical. It can happen to all of us. Maybe you're with some friends and they've been wanting you to toke up for a while. It's all the rage, you know, in the Kootenays. They've been wanting you to toke up for a while. They've been razzing you about it and you know you shouldn't. You know it's not smart. And, and, and you know Jesus doesn't really want you to. And you, you, The temptation is so strong, though, because you want to be cool. And you've been trying to get in with this crowd anyway. And, hey, it feels great, they say, at least. And, and, and you really want to be accepted by these guys. And so what do you do? 
Do you do the practical thing and toke up? Or do you follow Jesus and walk away? Maybe you're at work and a co-worker uh, steals some stuff from the bus because you know everyone does that, she says. And, and, and she wants you to cover for her and you feel this pressure because you really want to be liked by her and maybe accepted. You don't really want to be the rat. Who wants to be the rat? No one wants to be the rat. No one wants to be the squealer, right? But you know she's wrong. You know she's stealing from the company. Do you, do, do you keep the peace? Do you do the practical thing and let it go? I could go on. Your wife thinks you're way too generous. Way too generous to your friends. Way too generous to the church. She says, it's not practical. She's pressing you to stop giving. Your elderly friends are telling you, you know, it's just not practical anymore that you keep serving your, your neighbors at such an advancing age. Isn't it time to just enjoy life? You don't have a little for yourself? Your friends tell you that, let's be honest, you're going to be a 40-year-old virgin if you keep it up and insist that, that, that people actually wait till marriage to have sex. You're never going to have a girlfriend if you set those expectations that high. Come on, be reasonable. Everybody tries. Everyone else out before they buy in, right? Which is part of the problem, by the way. But they will, you know, you know Jesus is prompting you to initiate a spiritual conversation with your boss. But that's awkward, isn't it? And you're kind of hoping your boss would give you a raise at the end of the year, or some kind of promotion. It could create some real weird situations at work, right? And so, even though you've been feeling that prompting, do you do the practical thing and shut up? Or do you follow Jesus doing what seems very impractical? And whether it's caring for the earth, whether it's loving a neighbor, whether it's taking a stand or making a real sacrifice in your life, sometimes following Jesus will seem terribly impractical. And there will be people, there will be Christians, in fact, who will give you compelling arguments for why you should be more reasonable. Get with the times. Live in the real world. They'll make arguments that sound spiritual. In fact, they might even have some scripture verses to back it up. They'll make a case that seems so logical, so sensible, and yet it'll be dead wrong. Why is this difference there between the way we see things? How come an action that seems so impractical, so silly, so ridiculous from one angle can in fact be the right thing to do? It's because of the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. That's why. It's because as he pulls back the curtain, as Jesus himself pulls back the curtain on himself and shows us himself standing in the middle of our lives, as he pulls back the curtain on who we are, on who we truly are, as he pulls back the curtain on our situation, or what's going on around us, as we begin to see Jesus, we begin to see, as the curtain is pulled back, what is really true, what is really right. And we begin to make decisions that might seem impractical to everyone else because they're decisions based on his vision of reality, on what is truly true. That's what it means to live apocalyptically. Now, why did I start all this way? We haven't gotten to the text yet. Have we? Because this message, today's message in Revelation, Jesus' message to this church in Thyatira, is a message given to Christians who are being tempted to be more practical in their faith. They've been swayed by a charismatic leader who's argued for a, a more sensible, a more reasonable approach and is leading this church toward devastating compromise. It's the fourth of seven messages, little memos. If you, we've been talking about how the whole book of Revelation is a letter to these seven churches. And Jesus pens like a personal memo at the start, just after the, his opening vision, a personal memo to each of these seven churches to show he really does know what's going on so that they can apply that the whole letter 
to their specific situation. So this is the fourth of these seven messages sent to churches that are in what is modern-day Turkey. Let's dive into it. Uh, some of you have Bibles. Uh, there's inserts in your bulletin or programs there. You can read, and, and hey, some of you even have smartphones and iPads, so go ahead and look it up there. Here it is. To the, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, this is Jesus speaking, out of this vision at the start, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. When Jesus first looks at this church in Thyatira, what does he see? What stands out to him? He sees a church that's actively following him. A church that is serving one another, growing in love, sticking it out, serving their community, witnessing to Jesus in the midst of a very difficult city. And unlike the Ephesian church, the, the first memo that was penned right at the start of chapter 2, the Ephesian church, remember, they had lost their first love and they needed to go back and recapture things. This church had grown in love. They had grown in goodness. They were doing more than they had done at first. And Jesus, with all-seeing eyes and with all-powerful feet, he sees all of this and he affirms them for it. But, and we should be expecting this by now if we've been traveling in these memos, in this, in this revelation. That's not all Jesus has to say, is it? Yes, Jesus knows and sees you. Sees us. Sees our situation. He knows the areas we've been doing well. He knows the areas we've been growing. And we're thankful that he knows it and he affirms us for it. I think that's so encouraging. But Jesus loves us so much. He loves his church so much that he's going to do whatever it takes to keep us on the path to life. Correcting us, challenging us, calling us on stuff. Reminding us, warning us. Inviting us to change whatever it is that's keeping us from fully loving him and fully following his lead. So what's the problem in Thyatira? Listen to this. Verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Now, if you've been traveling with us in the series so far, this kind of feels like deja vu. I mean, haven't we heard this before? Sheldon? No, yes, thank you. <laughs> haven't we heard this before? Yes, we've heard this before. And, and, and that's right. It was just last week. In the church of Pergamum, Jesus challenged a group that was ignoring some teaching that was of a very similar feel, a very similar compromise. Well, in this church in Thyatira, the focus of Jesus tightens on a person, a charismatic and influential woman with prophetic gifts who's been teaching and practicing a compromised faith and has been leading Christians in this church to worship other gods, and even commit acts of sexual abuse and sin. Now, why in the world would this be going on? I mean, doesn't it seem weird to you that a church that Jesus has just affirmed is doing well, growing in love, growing in perseverance, and doing more, doesn't it seem weird to you that they would also be allowing her to teach something that's so obviously out of sync with Jesus? 
Well, let's unpack this a little bit. We don't know a lot about the city in Thyatira. There's not a lot of archaeological evidence. But what we do know is illuminating. As the manufacturing and marketing hub of the Roman province of Asia, artisans and merchants and tradesmen were just everywhere in Thyatira. There was so much going on. And what grew, grew up around all these various industries was an incredible amount of trade guilds, far more than was normal in an average city of that day. Everyone there was part of a guild. Uh, there were guilds for every conceivable profession, uh, shoemakers, bronzesmiths, clothing dyers, linen workers, potters, slavers, the whole nine yards. Every trade of any kind had a guild. And, and this is really key, really important to the, as we unpack this. Listen to this. If you weren't part of a trade guild, good luck getting anything for work. Good luck getting any business done. You weren't able to buy. You weren't able to sell. You weren't able to find a job. You weren't able to do business of any kind at all. Guilds protected and controlled all areas of industry. And these guilds were so much more than just business. They formed the social network of all these merchant and trade and artisan families. Uh, people worked within these guilds. They related within the guilds. They worshipped and entertained and married all within their respective guilds. But it's worshipping within the guilds where things got really sticky for Christians. And I don't think we appreciate just how religious these guilds, how, just how religious everything was in that time. Guilds, as I said, were not just business or family, even politics. Guilds were religious in, in and of themselves, to the very core. Every one of them, without exception, had patron gods, gods they believed sort of, oversaw and protected their business, gods they need to worship and, and, and pray and offer sacrifices to to sort of protect their, you know, purple dye trade or whatever. The, the various gods. And, and they would, they would, when they gathered, they would worship these gods and they would worship other gods too uh, because you want to cover all your bases. You, know, you never know. You don't want to offend someone, some particular god. Uh, you know, that's how they did. And so they would do this whenever they gathered, which they did a lot. The, the guilds would gather regularly for meals, uh, which was always... Always, always, their meals were set within a religious context. There was, in fact, hear this carefully, because this is just, this blows our minds. This is not us, this is not today. In this day, there was no such thing as a non-religious meal. There was no such thing as meeting at Tim Hortons with a friend. It didn't happen. When you ate, it was a religious experience. It was a religious expression. Let me read a little quote uh, that kind of gives us a window into the religious nature of these guild feasts. And, and how this would have presented a challenge to Christians. And I want you to, as I read this quote from, from William Barclay, I want you to, to hear the tension or the challenge of Christians who were trying to live out their faith in Jesus in this setting. Listen to this. Quote, These trade guilds had common meals together. The meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as a libation and an offering to the gods. It was, in fact, uh, the heathen grace, you could put it, before and after the meal. Could a Christian join a ceremony like that? Still further, uh, such a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice. Uh, the token part of an animal would be offered on an altar, and the meat of it would then be given to the worshiper to make a feast for the members of his trade guild. Could a Christian sit and eat meat which had been offered to idols? Could he participate in a meal where the meat had already been offered to Apollos or to Artemis, the local god? 
Still further, this trade guild feast would not infrequently, in fact, quite commonly, degenerate into carousals where drunkenness and immorality were the order of the day. Listen, folks, what they do is they'd bring in male and female slaves and they'd abuse them sexually at the meal. That's what would happen. Lots. Could a Christian, back to the quote, could, the, could a Christian participate in a feast where drunkenness and fornication were the accepted thing? End quote. Are you beginning to get a cultural picture here of what's going on? Begin to hear what the tension would be like? And to be a tradesman, to be an artisan, to be a you know, cloth merchant in Thyatira meant, by definition, you were part of this guild. You were part of your guild. And maybe it had been four generations. And when people came to know Jesus, something happened. As they embraced faith in Jesus and they were baptized into, into new life in Christ, they began to pull away from these activities. They began to pull away from what was going on in their guilds. They began to pull away from the guilds themselves. The Holy Spirit of God, who takes up residence in the life of every person who expresses faith in Jesus, began to work in their hearts, began to transform their minds, began to change the way they saw themselves, the way they saw the people around them, the way they even saw slaves, the way they saw outsiders. And these Christians very quickly began to realize that they couldn't continue to do this. They couldn't continue to worship false gods. They they couldn't continue to abuse people like that and follow Jesus. And as these new Christians came to realize the sanctity of their marriage, as they began to realize the kind of value God places on every single human life, slave, free, male, female, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter. The value that God places on every single human life is they began to realize that. They turned away. They repented. That's the meaning of turn away. They turned away from those harmful, awful practices that were just so common in their day and were done as an expression of worship to the gods. As they followed Jesus, everything began to change. Well, as you can imagine, as they pulled back from their guilds, Things went bad. Things went bad for them. They're no longer showing loyalty, right? No longer showing loyalty to the guild. I mean, you could anger the gods, right? You could anger our patron god. Do you realize he's the one, she's the one that's protecting our business here? And you're snubbing your nose at him, her? And we know what we read that, you know, these gods, these Greek gods, they, they're seriously jealous about this kind of thing. They like to work things against people that have ignored them. They're no longer showing loyalty. They're, they're, they're no longer one of them. And these people, these Christians, begin to suffer for it. Business starts drying up, you understand. Friends stop coming around. Um, it gets hard to find someone to buy your goods or to resource your trade. Or It gets, it gets harder now. People, they just aren't going to give you the work that you have been doing for years. You're good at it, but they won't give it to you anymore. Your kids are being mocked by other kids. Loyalty to Jesus is costing these believers an incredible amount. It's creating incredible pressure in their lives. These Christians in Thyatira were risking financial ruin. Their reputation was in the gutter. The family business was on the edge of ruin. How could they reconcile this? I mean, think about it. I want you to hear the tension. How could they reconcile their faith in Jesus? And all that he was showing them as he pulls back the curtain... All that he's revealing about who he is and his, his love for people and the change that's happening in their lives. How could they reconcile that and their need to make a living? Their need to put food on the table. Their need to continue to work because these are not wealthy people, right? 
How could they possibly be a Christian? Is there a way? They must have been wondering. Is there a way that we could sort of work it so we could still be part of the trade guild and, and still be loyal to Jesus? I mean, we could, we, could we come to some kind of arrangement? Enter Jezebel. Jezebel's not her real name, for sure. Jesus is just pulling a name out of the Old Testament hat who happens to be the name of the most vile, most hated, most treacherous queen in the Old Testament, queen of Israel, a queen who was viciously opposed to faithful worship of Yahweh and viciously opposed to faithful worshipers of Yahweh. Not only did she hunt down true prophets, she supported from the royal purse hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of false prophets of Baal, undermining the people of Israel right from the halls of power. And so Jesus calls this woman in, in this church, in Thyatira, Jezebel. She's a charismatic, influential woman, with eloquent in speech, I'm sure, persuasive and, and a powerful personality. Uh, she's very likely been part of this church uh, for a while, maybe since the church was planted. And she's been recognized by the church as someone who has prophetic gifts. Uh, she probably came to faith in that church and the reason why I say that is because out later we'll read it, how Jesus talks about how he has tried to get her to repent. He's gone after her, how we don't know, he sent people or pastors or friends or he's, John has gone himself, we don't know, but Jesus has tried to get her to repent. He's shown her patience, he's shown her grace. That's the heart of Jesus for people. Even people who are causing lots of problems, that's the heart of Jesus to people turn around and repent and receive forgiveness and move toward life. Well, what was Jezebel teaching? In a nutshell, this is super important, Jezebel had come to what I call some convenient revelation. Proclaiming it as the prophetic word of God. Saying that Christians could, in fact, go back to their trade guilds. They could continue to participate in the feasts and activities, and they still could be loyal to Jesus and do it. Now, why would she do that? I think in a nutshell, to resolve the tension. The very real tension that people were experiencing. The, the way they were being torn. The tension between loyalty to Jesus and loyalty to their business. Loyalty to their family. Loyalty to their friends. I think she was promoting a more practical Christianity. Come, come. You can just hear her. You don't need to hold yourself back. Refusing to join the guild and being part of the guild out of loyalty to Jesus is silly. You can have it both ways. Look, if we do that, we're going to be ruined financially and then we won't be able to give anything to the church. Surely Jesus wouldn't want that, would he? You could lose all your friends and we know Jesus wants you to have friends. Doesn't he? Right? Your family would be ridiculed. Your kids would be shunned. Think of the self-esteem issues your kids will have. Your wife will no longer be included in friendship circles, and I just don't follow a Jesus who would ask people to make that kind of sacrifice. No, I've got it firsthand. Because here's the deal. Since the gods aren't really real anyway, right? And everyone nods their heads. Oh, of course, the gods aren't real. We don't believe that Apollo, Apollos, Artemis, fabrications. They're not real anyway, so guess what? If you go to the feast and you eat the meat and it was offered to Apollo, it doesn't matter because Apollos wasn't real anyway. He's a fake. Some guy, some poet made him up. And you're, oh, and, and he's not real. So really, when you go and you eat a meal, it doesn't really matter because the God's not real anyway. And sex, let's talk about it. 
God made sex for you to enjoy. And, and as people have been freed from that awful tyranny of lawful, oppressive ways, we can express our love to Jesus in any way that we want to. In fact, we could even learn to have sex with slaves in nice ways. And for sure, we can be loyal to Jesus and be loyal to our business. God said so. This is the message that Jezebel is giving to the church. The arguments she made, I'm sure, were very similar to the arguments that Paul countered in the book, the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's why I drew that from. She's making this kind of argument. Can you hear it? Exclusive loyalty to Jesus is terribly impractical. This is what she's telling the people. This is the word she's received. And through a variety of very Christian-sounding arguments, Jezebel is leading these Christians in Thyatira back into sin, back into oppressive worship. Back into a place where they're abusing men and abusing women and worshipping not gods, but demons. And she's urging a a mixed-up spirituality that would literally gut this church within a generation. But let's get real for a minute. We're not in Thyatira, are we? I I mean, come on. We're all sitting here going, whoa! That would have been weird. But this is a powerful, powerful message that you and I hear all the time, don't we? Don't get too fanatical about Jesus. I mean, surely he wouldn't want you making any decisions that might harm your career, would he? And a lot of us say, I don't think Jesus would ask me to make a job that might harm my career. Uh, Don't be too open about your loyalty to Jesus. That's a downer. I mean, you wouldn't want to make your friendships awkward, would you? Give generously? Let's be reasonable. Chuck a few bucks in the plate. Help a neighbor once in a while. That should cover things. Serve radically? That's not practical. If you knew how many things I had in my calendar, you would not ask me to really serve others in a sacrificial way. Break up with him? I mean, I know he doesn't exactly follow Jesus and... And I know Jesus doesn't really approve of our lifestyle, but let's be honest, it's not really practical to end this relationship. Don't you hear it all the time? I hear it all the time. I hear it from people. I I hear it from Christians who claim to follow Jesus, but have somehow bought into a soft version of loyalty. As though, imagine this, our allegiance to Jesus shouldn't really affect us in any real ways. And certainly not in any negative ways. And don't we hear it from our own hearts? I hear it from my own heart. You know, my heart working feverishly to let myself off the hook. You know, I'm squirming. I'm looking for a workaround. I'm trying to find a position I'm convinced must be there where I can both be loyal to Jesus and have everything I want. Be reasonable. Be practical. This is the real world. But that is not what Jesus says to these Christians. And it's not what he says to us. Jesus, the Son of God, with his eyes blazing and bronze feet, he calls his people to exclusive loyalty. True faithfulness. Let's read on. Verse 21, he says, I've given her, Jezebel, I've given her time to repent of her immorality. But she is unwilling. It says so much about Jesus that he would do this. Doesn't it? So, here it comes. 
I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery, which probably, by the way, is both maybe a literal sexual adultery, but adultery in, in, in the larger story of Scripture also represents idolatrous worship, seen as idol, uh, adultery, uh, spiritual adultery. I will, I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. Again, there's still a chance. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Whoa. Jesus is not going to allow this kind of nonsense to destroy his church. And so he comes with this warning. It's a powerful warning. Urging repentance. In the amazing grace of Jesus, Jezebel has been warned again and again and again. Jesus has given her a chance to repent and to change. But he's not going to let this compromise continue. He loves the church too much to do that. And his act of judgment on her and her children, which certainly means her followers, not her literal children, I'm convinced of that, is going to send a signal, Jesus says, to all the churches, yes, the other six, but also extending to us who hear it, a message that Jesus really does see and know what's going on. Yes, in our lives. Yes, in our families, but in His church. He sees the conflict of loyalties. He sees the tension that we live in. And based on His knowledge of our faithfulness, based on His knowledge of our willingness to stand up and be counted, He said He will repay us according to the way we've lived, loyal or compromised. We know it's true. Jesus honors our freedom. He honors our freedom to choose life. He honors our freedom to choose death. And if we choose to reject the only source of life, the Son of God Himself, Jesus says, I will let you go and reap those consequences too. Will it be Jezebel or will it be Jesus? The loyalty to one leads to life. Loyalty to the other leads to death. It's just that stark. Not always when we're seeing it, not always in those situations, but as we see Jesus pull the curtain back, it gets really clear. That's why we need an apocalypse of Jesus. Now, Jesus knows this is not true across the board in Thyatira. It's never true across the board. The church is always a mixed bag. And so he speaks to others within that community. Verse 24, he says, Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching, have not learned the so-called, learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. A quote from Psalm 2. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus comes with a strong word for this church. But he also knows that there are faithful followers who've been holding strong, who've been loyal, who've been resisting the lure of Jezebel compromise. And so not only does he not impose any further burdens on them, he promises them a share in his kingdom rule, that they will join him, get this, in ruling over the nations when he receives his promised inheritance from his father. Quoting Psalm 2, Jesus lets his beleaguered people into a little kingdom secret. In the end, this is Jesus pulling back the curtain for them. In the end, faithful underdogs become kings. Those who've been ground to the dust today rise in resurrection power, joining Jesus and exercising authority from God. And what's more, those who 
overcome, those who resist Jezebel's practical faith, receive the gift of Jesus himself, who we find out at the end of Revelation is the morning star. So let me ask you, because it's been tough for some of you. Have you been choosing loyalty to Jesus over Jezebel? Have you been choosing Jesus over comfort? Have you been living out a loyalty in ways that really are beginning to hurt? Have you been keeping close to the vision that Jesus has for your life? The vision that Jesus has for your relationships? Have you been letting the vision that Jesus has for your, for your work? For, for your mind? Have you been letting the vision that Jesus has for you sexually and spiritually and relationally, physically and emotionally, have you been letting His vision transform you in such a way that standing faithful can seem so impractical to the people around you and yet you know it's the right thing to do? Jesus says to hold on to this promise that He knows you, that He sees you, that he knows what you've been struggling with, and he is promising that as we are faithful to him, as he has been faithful to us, in the end, we will reign with him. You may sit in the muck today, but there's going to come a day when you will sit beside Jesus himself as he brings his healing authority to his broken world. And on that day, Jesus promises that he will give himself to us. He will give himself to the faithful. He will give himself to those who have remained loyal, to those who have overcome in a way that we could never have imagined. The morning star, he says. This, this gracious star which shines out when the night is the darkest. That star will be yours. Promising that light is coming, even when we don't see it. Today, we're not going to do question and answer time today because, well, because this was nine pages long and we're going to do communion. Maybe next week we'll get a chance to ask some questions and comment. But today, we're going to move to communion together. I think it's absolutely fascinating that it's in the context of these trade feasts which were highly religious in nature. It's in this context as these guild feasts proclaimed in their meal, proclaimed the authority of certain gods. That it's in this context that Christians would gather and eat their worship meal. The communion meal was their apocalyptic alternative reality. The true worship meal that proclaimed the true Savior, the true Lord, A meal that didn't enslave people, but brought freedom to people. A meal that instilled life, not death. That invited everyone to come to the table, not as slaves to just serve or or, or, or men and women to be abused, but brought everyone to the table, regardless of their background, their struggle, their sin, their hurt, their status, their their gender, how much they've screwed up life, how much much they've struggled with self-righteousness, whatever it is, their intellect, everyone, welcome to come and to eat and to drink and to receive. And when we come to the communion table, we come to thank Jesus for that invitation, for that love. The love he had for us that was so powerful that he was willing to step in, step into our mess, step into the middle, that he's willing, I love it, to continue to step in, to like warn us because he loves us so much that when he sees our lives, when he sees our church going off track, he's willing to step in and correct us. That kind of love. So we come to the communion table and we thank Jesus for his life-giving lordship. We thank him for his love, for his grace, for his discipline. 
And we thank Him for His loyalty to us. That He didn't give us up because, let's be honest, it got a little difficult. That He didn't decide, "Uh, I don't think I want to try this cross thing because that will really hurt. That Jesus didn't decide in the end that we weren't worth it. He was loyal to us to the end through suffering, through death, and rising again in victory. He was loyal. And so we come to the table to thank Him for His loyalty, to thank Him for His love. We come to receive, but we also come to, to express, to express our loyalty. I don't know what it was this morning that you were challenged by, because I don't know your life. I don't know what it was as we were talking, as the Word of God was preached. I don't know what it was that the Holy Spirit said to you, that's you. You've been trying to have it both ways. You've been thinking you can be loyal to me and dabble over here in stuff that, let's be honest, is pretty destructive. Maybe it's a pornography addiction. Maybe it's a relationship with someone that you need to end. Maybe you were just so self-righteous that you look down on everyone else around you. And you think you can do that out of loyalty to Jesus. Maybe, maybe it's something that's, that's, that's amiss in, in, in your relationship with your spouse. Maybe it's something that you haven't told anyone about that you're struggling with in your heart and in your mind. I don't know what it is. But I pray that you do. And as you come to the communion table today, I pray that you will be able to come today and say, Jesus, this is the area where I've been living in the tension way too much that I need to say to you, I am devoted to you. To confess, to actually do the repentance thing. To say, as you come to communion today, I am turning away from the things that enslave me. And Jesus, I'm going to be exclusively loyal to you, even if it's the most impractical thing I could ever do. So what is it for you? Will you come today to the table expressing your allegiance to Jesus? Now, at the Erickson Covenant Church, we're always a mixed bag of folks on a variety of places in their spiritual journey. Some of you are, 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 are loving this whole church thing, but you're not too sure what you think about Jesus. Uh, you're, you're exploring that, and we are so happy you're here. And if you're ready today to say, I'm, in, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say yes to this Jesus guy, then this table's for you. I'd like you to tell me afterwards, because I well, really wanted to just talk to you and celebrate that. But this table's for you. It's for anyone who's saying, I'm gonna follow Jesus. I might have just decided, but I'm gonna follow Jesus. It's for anyone. If you're not sure yet, I invite you to consider what is it in my life that's holding me back from showing loyalty, what's holding me back from following this Jesus who has done everything for me. What is it? Identify it. Spend some time reflecting on that. But the invitation is open to anyone who will come and receive what Jesus has for us, his love and his grace and his forgiveness. We come today to say to Jesus, Jesus, you are all I want. You are all I need. You are more than enough. You're my only Lord, my only Savior, and may all other allegiances in my life be overturned. Maybe even today. May all other loyalties be outstripped. And may you, Jesus, be our everything. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to your table today at your invitation, knowing that you know us, that you passionately love us, And I pray today we would not hear a word of condemnation in anything that's been said, that anything that's guilt-inducing or strange or feeling like we're getting beaten down would just be gone, and we would hear your invitation, your gracious invitation into life itself, life with you. 
And as we come to the table today and remember your broken body represented by the bread and your shed blood, the new covenant represented by the juice, that as we come today, we would receive grace from you and in return, express love. Jesus, we do love you. And we come today at your invitation. In your name we pray. Amen.